Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Wow, in case we get thirsty, right? (laughs) Okay. Good afternoon, and welcome everybody to today's program at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Katie Hafner, and I'm a journalist covering health care for the New York Times. I'm pleased to be your moderator for this program on such an important topic. Joining us today is Dr. Sandro Galea, Dean and Robert A. Knox Professor at Boston University School of Public Health. He has been named an epidemiology innovator by Time Magazine and one of the world's most influential scientific minds by Reuters. Earlier in his career, Dr. Galea was a field physician for Doctors Without Borders. Dr. Galea's new book, Well, challenges us to think differently about health. He argues that as a society, we've been thinking about health the wrong way, conflating the concept of health with health care itself and placing too much emphasis on treating illness rather than addressing the societal, environmental, and political factors that lead to an eventual illness. Does that sound right? Perfect. I found the book moving, timely, and eminently readable. We're very pleased to have Dr. Galea here today in the Bay Area, as well as many alumni from BU in the audience. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming him to the Commonwealth Club. The very first thing that I must ask you is about Malta, (laughs) where you were born and raised. I was. So I'm from Malta, which is um, a very small island. It's one-tenth the size of Rhode Island, which sometimes when I say that, people say, is that possible? (laughs) It is possible. Um, uh, It's between North Africa and Southern uh, Europe. And um, before uh, my, um, my wife went to visit when we were married, she would joke, how is it possible that a plane ever lands on the island? Um, uh, there are 300,000 people in Malta, and uh, I was raised there, and then I left just before college, and I immigrated to Canada. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I actually enjoyed immigrating so much that I immigrated twice from Canada, also to the U.S., so I'm an immigrant twice over, <laughs> um, because it's really a lot of fun. Um, um, but, um, you know, being, um, I, I suppose I, I write in the, in the preface to the book that being a... Um, somebody who has come to this country from, from the outside gives me, I think, a perspective with some mm-hmm. dispassion sometimes on issues that we take for granted. And uh, in part, I wrote this book because I care deeply about this country now. I care, and I care very much about it becoming a healthier country for my children. Mm. How old are your kids? I have a junior in high school and a seventh grader. Oh, wow. So you said this is your 15th book, and it's your, most, your book most uh, directed at a, at a lay audience, right? It, it is my only book directed at a lay audience. So it's a, yes, um, so I did, the, my other 14 books are all sort of intended for an academic audience in some mm-hmm. way or another. And this book really emerged from, sometimes I'm asked, how long did it take me to write this book? And the answer I give is 20 years. Now, it didn't really take six months to write the book, but it, it really is a bit of a combination of a set of ideas that have been percolating through my work for the past 20 years. And it really has come to a place where I felt like I really should make an effort to engage a broader audience than the academic audience. That was the genesis of this book. 
Yeah, and on the readability front, I want to say kudos to you. Um, I read a lot of healthcare books, and they can be pretty dry, but um, not only is your language accessible but not condescending, but you cite some writers who are on, who are on my top 25 list <laughs> of writers of all time, including David Foster Wallace, Shakespeare, Mary Shelley, Charles Dickens. And all of these references come with an, a lesson. And if we have time, I want to talk about the David Foster Wallace, um, this is water lesson. Please. Um, but what I want to start with is another thing I like about the book is that you, a lot of these healthcare books, they just go, they're kind of a, a compendium of stories. Let me tell you about this sick person and this incident. And then you, f- you don't really get invested in any of any one story. But you don't do that. You don't just go from story to story. You stick mainly to one recurring story, mm-hmm. a woman named Sophia. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, so Sophia is... Um is a, is a composite character, although everything in the Sophia story is really comes from real life experience. And uh, the um, Sophia is a is a woman who's born to um, parents who are not particularly well to do, who loved Sophia very much, but um, they had to make ends meet by working multiple jobs. So Sophia spent a lot of time raising herself and uh, living in a neighborhood which was close to a bus depot. As a result, there were a lot of diesel fumes in the air and developed asthma. Sophia was very good at um, math at school, and uh, she was suggested by her teachers for um, special advanced math math classes. But, of course, she couldn't go to them because she had nobody to drive her to them after school. Mm. She got pregnant at um, 16, in part because she um, went to um, a um, Catholic school that didn't actually teach her anything about sex education. And her mother had been... Pregnant. And her mother had also been pregnant with her at a young age. Mm-hmm. And, um, but then, you know, so she, she was trying to figure out how to make ends meet, working multiple jobs. Eventually, she found herself to working for a catering company and uh, did very well because she actually had a lot of talent. And uh, the problem was that by now, she had asthma and uh, she was about 40 pounds overweight based on the availability of food that was available to her. And... I sort of jump ahead. I tell a few more pieces of her life to Sophia being 45, middle age, 40 pounds overweight with asthma and having osteoarthritis in her knees. And she goes to see the doctor. And the doctor, of course, says, you need new knees. She says, one new knees. So he gives her opioids and then she develops an opioid dependence. So now we have a 45-year-old woman who needs new knees, has an opioid dependence, and is taking treatment for her asthma. Now, the reason I use that story is to say Sophia is the classic person who we consider a patient in the healthcare system. We see her as a 45, overweight, needing your knees, has an opioid dependence, and we see her as a set of problems. So is that when the doctor says the patient presents as? Correct. The doctor will say Sophia is a 45-year-old woman. She's 30 pounds overweight. She has uh, osteoarthritis in her knees. She has, uh, she has type 2 diabetes. She has asthma, and she has a dependence on opioids. And, of course, the doctor does what the doctor is trained to do, which is she will try to figure out treatments to give Sophia. And that is not an indictment or a criticism of the doctor. That's what the doctor, that's what we as a society train the doctor to do. What, of course, the doctor does not see and has no control over is why Sophia is who she is at age 45. And that is ultimately what has generated the health or the poor health that Sophia brings with her to the doctor's office. 
So then what you do through the rest of the book is you take us step by step mm-hmm. through the various factors that need to be taken into account when, by the time we get to a, a situation like Sophia's. Mm-hmm. And, um, but before we do that, let me. you have said, that I want to clear up one important uh, distinction yes. that you make, which is that you say one of our challenges is that we keep mixing up health and health care. Yes. Can you elaborate and how do you, how do you? Yeah. The, um, may I tell a story to tell that? A story. We love stories. All right. Let me, let me tell another story. This one is actually in the book. By the time we finish, you, you won't need to buy the book. We'll just tell you the whole book. Um, um, Blind Willie Johnson. So Blind Willie Johnson is a blues player. And uh, some of you may have heard of him if you like the blues. He was born in Texas at the turn of the 20th century. So 1900s. He was born sighted when he was seven his mother threw lie in his face in a domestic violence incident. So he was blind. So he blind, poor, black in Texas, the early 1900s. He got married, lived in a house, and the house burnt down, and him and his wife didn't have any money, so they kept living in the burnt-out shell of the house. When he was 40, he developed malaria. So this is Texas in the 1940s. Malaria was actually quite common. And his wife took him to hospital, and he was turned away from hospital. And then he died. So it's not clear if he was turned away because he was poor, because he was black, because he was blind. But the question is, what killed blind Billy Johnson? And the answer is malaria. Malaria killed him. But the reason I tell that story... So that's the health part of it. That's the healthcare part of it. The reason I tell the story is because homelessness, domestic violence, racism, poor access to care, all contributed to his health. So the, the challenge between healthcare and health is healthcare is about treating malaria. Health is about everything else. And our societal investment is all in healthcare. And the, the reason I make that case is it's important that we treat malaria. So it, 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 is not an, it is not an or argument. It's not an argument against treating malaria. It's not an argument against healthcare. It simply says that we need to understand that healthcare is part of a much larger constellation of forces that generate health. And Blind Willie Johnson and Sophia are essentially the same story. Is that clear with everyone? <laughs> because I'm, yeah, I'm just. It's when I started reading this, it was so epiphanous. Mm. Uh, and yet, some people might say, you know, this is obvious. You yes, know. I actually, I've been told that many times, and actually, I think that's the highest compliment. I've been told that uh, that um, all of this is obvious. And whenever, whenever people say that, I think that's great because then, as long as we all understand that, it will change how we deal with health altogether. So I, 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 I like to think that um, telling people stories and creating a narrative that elevates what is in our subconscious means that we all agree on this, which means that that's going to lead to change. And yet, and I believe me, I'm, I'm as idealistic as the next guy. I, I it's as reading it, I somehow found myself, I would be, it was like a roller coaster. I would be uplifted <laughs> and then I would get depressed thinking we're never going to deal with these really, really deep seated historical right. problems that lead that make up health yep. and lead to the current healthcare system. And uh, so, for instance, um, an example of how intractable I find the problem is, um, when we say someone's race is a risk factor for diabetes, it seems to me it isn't race, it's racism. Correct. And deep and embedded racism. So how do we even start to address that? Yeah, I think, um, let me address the, the meta question you raise, and then I'll, I'll get to the specific. So, so can any of this change? Here's the, the good news. The good news is that America today, 
has worse health than any other high-income country, despite the fact that we spend 40% more on it. Now, why is that good news? It's good news is because it wasn't like that 35 years ago. So we have put ourselves in this position. And the reason I say it's good news is because if we did this in 35 years, we can change it. So, so the, fact, the fact that we got ourselves here in 35 years fills me with optimism that we can reverse it. Now, let's talk about the particular. We have a very blinkered understanding of the role of factors like race because we tend to attribute it to genetics. Now, anybody who understands genetics understands that race, as a, from a genetic perspective, contributes negligibly to our health. What contributes to our health is racism, is our life experiences, just like just like sex, and by sex I mean biological sex, contributes negligibly to sex differences in health. It is ultimately, it, it, it is ultimately sexism that contributes to our health. So once we understand that, once we understand that, my hope is that we will actually recognize that health is one more reason. It's not the only reason, but it's one more reason why racism and sexism should be unacceptable. And I, I always want to be careful because the argument is not that it is because of health that sexism is bad. No, there's many reasons have nothing to do with health, why sexism and racism should be unacceptable. But health should be one more reason that pushes us there. So what, so what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. what I understand it is that you're saying that we should place health at the center of policy debates. Yes. But, and here's another meta question. I'm sorry for all these no, big ones. But how do we shift people's values so that that happens? And how do we take this conversation beyond the people who are already having it? So I think, I think the larger meta question, correctly, as you correctly put it, is how does one change conversations, period? And you change conversations in two ways. Number one is through policy signifiers. And the other one is through this kind of conversation. Let me talk about policy signifiers. So what, what has Ecuador done? What Ecuador has done and Sweden has done, I actually lead with Ecuador because Sweden tends to, we tend to dismiss it for reasons that are inexplicable, is... <laughs> wait, wait, just Sweden? I, don't we all hold Sweden up as a model? I, I feel like in our electoral season, you know, you always have this finger pointing saying, you want us to be like Denmark and Sweden, and some other politician says, no, I don't, to which my answer is always, why not? What's wrong with that? But anyway, <laughs> this is a, we're, we're digressing. Um, um, what Ecuador and Sweden have done is they have created health constitutions that says very clearly that we will implement policies with health in mind. That means that when we're doing transport, making transportation decisions, we'll create a health impact assessment and say, how is this going to affect health? When we're implementing economic policies, we'll say, how does it affect health? When we're creating housing policies, we'll ask, how does it affect health? Now, why is that viable? It's viable because we all care about health. Now, I speak to audiences all the time. Now, this is San Francisco, which is a very particular type of city, of course. But when you talk to audiences with diverse political perspectives, people differ. People differ on autonomy. People differ on guns. People differ on a range of issues. But you know what people never differ on? Is that everybody wants their kids to be healthy. Like, there is no difference among any of us. Everybody wants their kids to be healthy. So it seems to me like our task is to say, let us understand how to achieve that. And if we understand how to achieve that, we can achieve it. So you have a chapter. One of my favorite chapters on the, in the book is, is about choice, mm. and, um, which contains another one of my favorite literary works, which is The Devil Wears Prada. 
I think you're the only person probably on the planet who has ever put the Downward Prada <laughs> and Shakespeare and Dickens into one I, I will book. Ta- I will take that with me to the grave. <laughs> and made really good points <laughs> with each <laughs> of them. So tell, let's talk a little bit about choice. Sure. Well, so much, I mean, I'll, I'll use the Devil Wears Prada example um, uh, since you mentioned it. So the movie Devil Wears Prada, which I presume many of you saw, but not everybody. So I'll, I'll paint the picture. For those of you who saw it, you'll remember it. Those of you who didn't, I'll try to paint the picture. Um, the, the, the premise is, of course, the editor of, of a big magazine who's a fearsome creature and an intern who is cowering in her, in her wake. And the scene is where the intern and the editor are looking at choosing an item of clothing and the intern is being disdainful, saying this doesn't matter. And the editor says, well, you know, you think that uh, you have choice in what, you, in what you're wearing, but in fact, you're wearing this color. It was cerulean, which was a type of blue, and said, you think you chose your cerulean. But in fact, you did not choose your cerulean. The reason you're wearing cerulean today is because Oscar de la Renta in 2002 featured cerulean in his runway. And then Yves Saint Laurent featured cerulean military jackets. And then, and then another designer, another designer, another designer. And over the past decade, cerulean has entered the mainstream and you just chose that sweater and you thought you chose it. But in fact, it was chosen for you over the past decade by these fashion decisions. So the reason I use that example is because one of the pushbacks that we get on this kind of reasoning about health is always, well, we're Americans. We like to choose. But in fact, we're wrong. We, our, our, our latitude of choice is actually quite narrow. It always is, because the world around us is being constrained by larger forces, be they private sector or public sector. You can and see it, why this book is depressing in parts. And, and, Go but, on. But, but the argument I'm making is to say, is to say, well, given that constraint, wouldn't we rather choose among things that are going to generate health, that that's what we want to be, we should want to be choosing for. And that's why I use the Devil Wars product. Now, let me say one more thing about choice, if I may. Because one of the things which I hear often is to say, well, and this sometimes has a bit of a tinge of people say, well, you know, you're an alien, so you don't understand America. But I think I do. And the notion is, well, we like freedoms in America. And my answer is, we do like freedom. But we mistake freedom to and freedom from. We don't only want freedom to do things, but we also want freedom from dying unnecessarily. We all in this room want the freedom not to walk out to the Commonwealth Club and run the risk of dying. That is a freedom. It's a freedom from. And the reason that you're all going to walk out of the Commonwealth Club and not be afraid of dying when you walk out is because we have created an environment where you have the freedom from dying unnecessarily. So I would argue that we simply need to recalibrate the freedoms that we privilege. And in in um, in that chapter on choice, I mean, you, the um, gun violence is a, runs through yes. the book, but you cover it at some length in that chapter. You've done a lot of work on trauma and gun violence, mm-hmm. and talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I, I, I talk about gun violence in a couple of ways. Um, number one, I talk about it earlier in the book when I talk about politics, power, and money are health, and I make the argument that we accept guns and the rate of gun violence in this country, which is, I can show you and talk about data endlessly, it is just outrageously high compared to all other peer countries, simply because the political and power discussion has been swayed by commercial manufacturers of a particular commercial product. And, and, and I'm reducing it to that language intentionally. Guns are a commercial product. You cannot sue a gun manufacturer for hurting yourself with that product. You can sue a toaster manufacturer 
for hurting yourself with a toaster. So I don't know if you know that. You can do that. So if anybody hurts yourself with a toaster, feel free. But if you hurt yourself with a gun and somebody hurts you with a gun, you cannot sue for that. Now, why is that? That is simply a, a political power play decision that we have accepted. And that is what has created our gun situation in this country. Things like Sandy Hook happened. Sandy Hook happened. It was a national tragedy. And the national conversation has been, well, after Sandy Hook, there's been a lot more forces lobbying for gun safety. But in fact, the forces lobbying for gun rights tripled after Sandy Hook, much more than forces lobbying for gun safety. So it really is a function of power and money. In the notion of choice, I get to this. It says we should be free to choose whether we want a society where there's a certain rate of gun deaths. And I actually, now this might sound controversial, I actually don't think it's crazy for us as a society to say we are duly informed about guns and we choose to have 45,000 people die from guns a year because we care about having a gun at our holster. My argument is that we're not actually making that choice. We are misinformed by larger forces and we think we're choosing, but in fact we're not choosing. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, again, it's 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 all it seems so logical to me, but there's so much of America out there that just would say you're just plain wrong. But we don't need all of America. <laughs> we, need- we just need we just need a good proportion. <laughs> the other work you've done on that relates to gun violence is you you've you've looked at the behavioral health consequences yes. of trauma and. Uh, the, um, from 9-11 um, mm-hmm. and from caused by firearms. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about your findings in that research? Yeah, so we, um, I was in New York on um, <clears throat> September 11, 2001, and uh, I, I was actually finishing my PhD at the time. And um, that resulted in a whole set of work, which I've done about mental health consequences of trauma, and largely mass trauma. And uh, I would summarize what we found as number one, that there are deep and profound mental health implica- uh, consequences of mass traumatic events. Number two, those mental health consequences are not only among the people who we typically think of as victims, meaning the people who are involved in the event itself, but also in the community at large. And in the context of guns in this country, we there are no studies, because guns research has not been funded until very recently, that have quantified the scope of mental health problems that are linked to firearms. So we would expect, by the way, for every person who is shot by a gun, there are about three people who are shot and every person killed, there are about three people who are not killed. So the people who are not killed have a high likelihood of mental illness and their families and communities have a high likelihood of mental illness. So when, when the story is told, 10 years from now, the story will be told. We will find that the consequences of gun violence are in the hundreds of billions of dollars, largely because of mental illness as a result of gun violence. Um, so I want to turn to David Foster Wallace. Please. And uh, this is, I was just so delighted when I was, it's only on page 48 and I was already delighted. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, in the context of um, writing about uh, the health influence of place, uh, you quote uh, David Foster Wallace, one of my very favorite writers. He mm-hmm. must be one of your very yes. favorites. And this was a commencement, commencement speech, as I recall, it that was. he gave at Kenyon yes. College. Which you, yeah. which you can buy as a, which you as can a, buy as a little book, little highly book. recommended, called mm-hmm. This is Water, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so beautiful. I'm going to read it, uh, and then you can talk about mm-hmm. how this fits into your, into your health thesis. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, Morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, What the hell is water? <laughs> I know, isn't that profound? So, uh, t- tell us about why sure. this story... So, actually, the... the um one of the covers we considered for the book was a f- cover with fish on it because I loved that story so much. We eventually went with the tree. but uh, Tree with very deep roots. Um, so I, um, I actually tell a metaphor that, that borrows self-consciously from David Foster Wallace, which goes like this, which is you have a fish, you have a pet goldfish, and you want your goldfish to be healthy. So you care for your pet goldfish. So what you do is you tell your goldfish every day, I want you to swim in your bowl 10 times clockwise, 10 times counterclockwise, so you get exercise. And when I feed you the little flaky food, don't eat too much of it so you don't get fat. And when you have a goldfish companion, make sure you have safe goldfish sex. And in case you get sick, I'll get you the best possible goldfish doctor. So you look after your goldfish, and then one day you walk into your living room, and you realize your goldfish is dead. And you say, how is it possible? It exercised, it ate well, it saw a doctor, and it's dead. Then he realized, ah, it's because I forgot to change its water. So the point of the metaphor, as well as what David Foster Wallace meant, is that we do not stop and think about what are ubiquitous forces around us, what is around everything that we do, what influences everything we do. If you're a fish, the water influences everything you do. Or a bus depot. Or, a bus, or if you're Sophia, in the example I said, it's the bus depot spewing diesel fumes that's influencing her asthma. So really, the, the, the goldfish metaphor, which is why actually I love the David Foster Wall story and why I've sort of developed this goldfish metaphor as an homage to him, that captures everything that's in the book. Mm-hmm. What the book is about is it's about saying, if we want to generate health, we need to recognize these forces around us that we frequently do not think about. So thank you for pointing that out. Here's a question from the audience. How can the country put more emphasis on disease prevention? Corporations oppose it since they lose money. Yeah, so we spend $3.3 trillion on healthcare a year. From that, about 2 to 3% is spent on prevention. And um, what is interesting about that is if I were to ask a show of hands in the room and say, how many of you would rather live in a world where you don't get Alzheimer's versus live in a world where you can get treated for your Alzheimer's? Everybody will choose the former. So why is that? So I don't think it's accurate that corporations would lose money. I think it's more accurate to say that our incentive structures are such that both public and private actors are not incentivized to invest in prevention. And that is, in large part, short-termism in our thinking in both private and public spaces. So it, it, it's, it's a fascinating conundrum because it runs so deeply against what we actually all want for ourselves and our children. And a few tweaks, a few tweaks will change that. Okay, give us an example of a few tweaks. I'll, I'll give an example in, in the realm of healthcare, very much at the level of delivery of care by physicians. Physician who is paid to see sick people in her office has really no incentive to prevent disease from the person. A physician is a good person and wants to do the right thing, but I was a physician and I practiced in fee-for-service and at the end of the day, Katie, you come to me, I check your blood pressure, and I say, come back in two weeks and let's check it again because I'm getting paid more and more. Physicians who are paid in global payment systems have every incentive in the world to keep their population healthy. And just that 
changes how the physician operates just that we can and we're seeing that happening we're seeing that happening particularly in systems like actually out here like kaiser permanente that has moved largely to global payments for physicians mm -hmm. because these systems that are self-controlled have realized that that providing sick care is no way to incentivize their physicians to actually create healthier patients here's another question from the audience let's see if i can read it the california community colleges serve 2.1 million students there are health service programs that focus on public health, community health, within most of the 114 colleges. This person knows their statistics. Administrators in the system continue to push back on public health resources needed because we're, quote, not in the healthcare business. Mm. How can we health service directors delta our message, change our message? Yeah, it's an excellent question. I... I, I um I don't know the particularities, obviously, but um, the um, I, I do have sympathy for system administrators and leaders who are who face their own particular incentives, and then who say, "Well, I'm told I'm not in that business." And in part, I feel like we need to support people in these systems who are in positions to make decisions in changing the conversation to make it clear that we are all in the health business. Because ultimately, education, I actually just did a piece in Psychology Today, just came out a couple of days ago about this, about how education is an inexorable part of generating health. So they are in the health business. I'm not sure who, who made that comment, but I'm sure it's somebody who made that comment out of frustration, feeling like they cannot actually invest properly in, um, in what they actually want to do. But it, it is foolish of us to leave individual administrators up to their own devices and let them struggle to try to assert that what they need to do to generate health. We just simply need to change our conversation, make it clear that education is part of the health business. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. You touched on this earlier. Here's another question from the audience. Um, maybe we could go a little deeper into it. Lifespan expectations in the U.S. Mm. have fallen in recent years. Why and what can be done about this? Just a couple of light questions. Yeah, yeah, this is, um, now we're getting to the grim part. So 2018, 2017, 2016... Uh, life expectancy in this country went down. The last time we had a three-year downturn in life expectancy was the 1918 flu pandemic, 100 years ago. I often challenge audiences to say, how many people know that? I'm, it's hard to see from here, so I'm not going to ask a show of hands. Usually usually I get 5% of a room who knows that. I can see. So how many people? How many people knew that before I said it? The question is, how many of you knew that we have had a downturn in life expectancy that has been unparalleled for a hundred years, so a good, th a, good a good third. This is a better informed audience than yep. usual. Um, and my, oh, my, my challenge is, my challenge is, shouldn't this be in every newspaper all the time? Like this is yeah. a real problem. Um, now the question is, why is this? The, the, the particular drivers of it in, in this moment are three things. One is um, neurodegenerative disorders, which are disease of aging, Alzheimer's. The other one is opioid-related complications, and the other one is firearm-related suicides. Those are the three big drivers. Leaving aside 
the biology of aging, which is sort of a whole, there's a whole set of science to be done there. Opioid-related complications and firearm suicides are direct reflections of societal decisions and societal structures. They are direct decisions, direct reflections of decisions we have made about economic opportunity, about access to care, about the availability of firearms. They are direct imprints of this force we're talking about, which is the larger forces around us. So do you think, do you think since we're coming up on the 2020 election, sorry mm-hmm. to throw this one at you, yeah. um, is there a candidate who you think comes close <laughs> to this change in the national conversation toward demanding health, toward saying that we should be creating an environment that generates health? You can take the fifth, but... It's a good question. Um, um, well, I certainly haven't heard it from the likely Republican candidate for president. Um, um, the, um, on the Democratic side, um, the, the, there are... You know, I'm not going to take debate and choose a candidate, but uh, I will point out a couple of things that some candidates are saying. So, for example, um, um, Cory Booker has been, I think, correctly talking about items like baby bonds, which are really a way, baby bonds are really a way to re-equilibrate intergenerational problems with wealth inequity. They're really a way of saying you give disadvantaged groups who have never had chance to accumulate in their generational wealth a certain amount of money to essentially raise the floor. Mm-hmm. That kind of effort could raise the floor and narrow gaps between health-haves and health-have-nots within one generation in a way that other approaches cannot do. Is that an original proposal? It seems quite um, I mean, it's, 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 it, I think it's original at this, at this level of politics. I mean, the idea itself has sort of history over the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Julian Castro has, I think, the best fleshed-out approaches to creating pathways to to immigration that can solve a lot of the immigration problem, which I think ultimately is a core part of generating health. Mm-hmm. I think Elizabeth Warren has a number of policies that go towards creating economic opportunity across the sexes in particular that nobody else has. I think mm-hmm. all of these ultimately go towards creating the kind of world we're talking about. So we need a mashup candidate. A little, little bit here, a little bit there. Yeah. Well, and, of course, I have to ask you, what is your opinion of Medicare for All? Well, I, I, I'm not sure that, and this is now, now the downside, I mean, I was being very positive about the primaries. Um, um, the, I, I'm not sure that the candidates, all of whom, by the way, are in favor of Medicare for All, ostensibly, um, know what they mean when they say they're in favor of Medicare for All. I think, I think uh, one, one candidate's Medicare for All is different than other candidates. I think at core, what they, what they are all what they all think they mean is they're in favor of universal access to health care for everybody in the country. At some level, to me, it seems like a stain on our national conscience that we even have to discuss it, that we even have to discuss people not having access to care. So how we achieve that, we should achieve it. But Medicare for All, as currently discussed, probably will actually not achieve that. If, and But even drilling down a little bit deeper on that point, I mean, you talk about how gun manufacturers, they're, they're manufacturing a commercial product. The insurance companies are manufacturing a commercial yes. product. And so that is one huge elephant in the room that we cannot ignore when we talk about. No, that's correct. And if you look at it, there are some, um, there, there, there have been four, I think four as far as I'm aware, um, uh, very good economic analyses of how to transition us to a universal healthcare system. Um, the best one, I think, is from University of Massachusetts Amherst. And um, 
you know, they, they've done quite good economic analyses about the cost implications of transitioning industries like that. The, the bottom line is it can be done. There will be real upheaval in some industries, but it can be done. And if done right, it will minimize the human cost. Hmm. I have another question from the audience. How concerned should we be about outbreaks of measles and other illnesses that vaccines should stop? That's a great question. The answer is very. And um, it, it, part of the theme, uh, one of the chapters of the book is called The Many. And uh, we're... The Many? The, the Many and the Few. Um, uh, we talk about people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the point I'm trying to make about sort of many and a few in the book when I talk about people is our health is interdependent. Like we actually have no choice in the matter but to recognize that your health and my health are linked. And, vac- and vaccines is a perfect example. I can vaccinate my kids, but my kids' chances of getting measles are heightened if you all are not vaccinating your kids. I use the example of Ebola. Why should you care about health systems in West Africa? That's pretty far away from you, right? You can say I'm a good person. I care about charity. I care about West Africa. That's true. But the other reason you should care about health systems in West Africa is because if health systems in West Africa crumble, you are going to get Ebola in San Francisco, right? So this is how we're interlinked. This is our health depends on each other. Now, that's not just infectious diseases. It's also in all sorts of ways. Kids dying from car accidents. 10% of kids who die because of cars are neither, they're not in the car itself. They have nothing to do with the car that kills them. They are simply pedestrians killed by um, people who are under the influence of alcohol, right? So our health is interlinked. So the point is that, yes, we should care very much about uh, the changing narrative of measles and the vaccination because it's going to affect all our health. Which uh, segues beautifully. I don't know. There's a mind reader out there. Um, a question from the audience. We all want health for ourselves and our children, but not for everyone else, apparently. Hmm. How do we stop looking at health as a zero-sum game? The more we spend on getting you healthy, the less we have for me. Yeah. So I talk about health as a public good in, uh, in the book. And uh, public goods, of course, are are non-exclusive goods. They're non-rivalrous, non-exclusive, to use the technical term. And the perfect example of public good is a public park, right? And uh, in the book, I tell the story, a, a, a fable, if you will, about a public park, which everybody was enjoying until a candidate for mayor, she decides that her signature program is going to be, why is it that you're all paying for the park and you don't own it? Let's just divvy it up and you should take your own piece of the park. And she wins the election and then follows through and divvies up the park. And, of course, everybody gets a small postage stamp-sized piece of the park, which is utterly useless, and the park falls into disrepair and disuse. Now, I tell that story because every time I tell the story, people say, well, that's ridiculous. But it's not so ridiculous. It's exactly what we do with health. The assumption about what we're doing with health is that Katie's health and my health are independent, that you can spend money on your health, I can spend money on our health, we may care for each other because we're charitable, but ultimately our health is independent. And that's simply a false assumption. Our health is interdependent. It's interdependent behaviorally. It's interdependent about infectious disease. It's inter- interdependent around chronic disease. And once we understand that, once we understand that, we recognize that creating barriers for any of us to access health care is a real mistake because we're hurting ourselves. So I guess I, I get the infectious disease part, but the other two parts, I'm still having trouble getting my mind around the interdependency. Yeah, so, so the, um, 
the science on this is pretty clear, for example, that your chances of being obese are about 40% higher if your friends are also obese. Your chances of dying in an accidental death is, I don't remember what the percentage, is that much higher if you're living in an environment where accidents are more likely to happen. Really? Yeah, so, so that is, at, at, at a very base level, a simple sign of our interdependence on our health. So not to mention, of course, the air we breathe, the food we, the, the food we eat, and the water we drink. Mm-hmm. Um, interbe- our interdependence on health is flint. Our interdependence on our health is the fact that one-third of Americans do not drink water, tap water, that is sufficiently fluoridated to, to prevent cavities. And now you're in San Francisco here, so sometimes when I ask audiences from different parts, when, when I'm speaking to groups that come from different parts of the world, the country, I say, raise your hand how many of you know the level of fluoridation in the, in the water you drink. And yes. No, I said you're in San Francisco. It's a, you know, it's a, very few. In, in general, very few of us actually know that. So, and by the way, if you don't drink sufficiently fluoridated water, you, you're, you have 20% more cavities than if you do. Yeah, that's interesting. So we, should, we just need to, we need to know more. We need to... Uh, understand the water in which we swim. That's correct. Right? Both metaphorically and in the context of drinking it in cavities, yeah. literally. Yeah, but we and our fellow fish. Yes. Yeah. And, and recognizing that, that our health is interdependent with the health of our fellow fish. But the, the other thing that I find not to beat on this David Foster Wallace thing so much uh, is that the fish are simply in the water and they never even noticed it. Correct. And that's what's profound about it. But the other fish, who's more aware of, in a meta kind of way, like you guys, you're in water. How is it? Uh, what What are you? Where do you come down? Do you think we should be more aware of our water, or should we be more let, like let, those let, little let, fish? Let, 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 we should totally be more aware of our water. Let's use Let's use an ex- another example. Let's talk about cities. Cities. The majority of the world's population now lives in cities. Cities are a human-made environment which means we are shaping our own water. Now, one of the biggest population demographic shifts that matters is population aging. More and more people are moving into cities. And we can say, we have a choice. We can create cities that generate social isolation of the elderly, or we can create cities that encourage social integration. Now, how do we do that? Let's be concrete about it. Let's take one example in Singapore, for example. So Singapore, one of the challenges with people as people get into their 80s in terms of walking in urban environments is you're walking more slowly so you can't cross the road because you're going to get run over, right? It's a very simple uh, approach. Instead of pressing a button, you have a card. When you swipe the card, the card knows that you're over a certain age and the length of time it takes for the light to change is now slower to let you walk across, right? It's a banal, I'm using a banal, simple example on purpose to say this is how we change our water because we think about it, right? Otherwise, you don't do that and you say, well, it's just how it is. Once you get over a certain age, you just can't really walk around in the city because you're going to get run over, so therefore stay in your apartment. No, we are making choices that creates that kind of environment and we should make choices differently, but we're only going to do that if we think about the water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, uh, a few years ago, I did a big series on falls uh, yes. among older adults and... It was really eye-opening. Uh, we ran a video that showed what it is that an 80-year-old pair of eyes sees yes. going downstairs versus... So that's what you're... Yeah, false, false is a perfect example because fall, we have this notion, well, the elderly just fall and it's just how it is. No, it's not. Yeah, the elderly right. fall because we create an environment in which the elderly fall. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
So, um, <clears throat> switching gears a little bit, another question from the audience. An important risk factor for obesity and diabetes is highly processed food, especially mm-hmm. with sugar. How can that be changed? Yeah, so the uh, extending the, the um, water metaphor, that can be changed by us choosing what we subsidize and what we incentivize. So I can show you a graph, which I have, that looks at corn subsidies per state and obesity rate per state. And it's a what we call a dose-response relationship. More it's called a dose-response relationship. More corn subsidy, more obesity. It's very simple. More dose, more response. Oh, I see. Um, so subsidies, what we choose to subsidize, are ultimately political decisions that are influenced by money and power. And we subsidize an industry that generates nutrient-poor, calorie-dense foods, and that is directly responsible for the obesity epidemic in this country. So there are decisions that we make. Now, I understand the audience will say, well, it's not a decision I made, but there are collective decisions, and we have allowed these decisions to be made for, made for us, and the obesity epidemic is the consequence of those decisions. Mm. I guess. I mean, I would go back to the sort of falling into the latter camp of was this really our choice because all this food is put in front of us, especially the Sophias of the world. That's exactly right. It's not your choice and my choice. It's our choice collectively. Mm -hmm. Here's an example. I don't know how many of you had a bagel this morning, but for those of you who did, you can confess. (laughs) Do you know that a bagel today has two and a half times more calories than a bagel did 20 years ago? A typical bagel, a muffin today, and I can show you this data. A muffin today has four times more calories than a muffin did 20 years ago. Right? Just 20 years ago? Just 20 years ago. I can show you this data. So, so just to be clear, the mistake we make is to say, Katie, it's your choice. You chose the muffin. You chose the bagel. But another approach to take it is, it's not really your choice. You just ate what was in front of you. Right. It's our collective societal choice that we have allowed our bagels and muffins to get to this We stage. need to go back to the old bagels. Just saying. I mean... <laughs> I, the bagels, the, these Noah's things that are like dinner rolls, can I just say for the, the record, that, that is, that, an that abomination. Is so, so, so the level of choice, so I just want to be clear, that, and the point I'm trying to make on choice is that we move away from blaming the individuals for our choices, and, but it doesn't get us off the hook, right? We need to embrace our collective responsibility to create healthy choices for all of us. So how do we make sure... Let's bring the physicians into this. Yes. How do we make sure that the next generation of physicians is trained differently? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm on the record as so I've written, I wrote an essay about this in uh, December. You're, that, say again. You, I, I wrote an essay about this in December. That oh, you says did? That, in, uh, that physicians have a real responsibility to engage with contemporary social issues because physicians, for two reasons. Number one, Physicians have an important voice. And no matter what we say, my grandmother will always think of what her doctor tells her is more important than anything else. So doctors need to be able to represent this view of health if we're going to make any difference. That's number one. Number two, doctors ultimately are trained to be technically skilled at curing us once we get sick. And I don't want to lose that. I mean, when I have a heart attack, I want the best trained doctor possible to look after my heart attack. So we need doctors to be able to understand that they are part of a larger system and at the same time is do their job right. And if I may use another metaphor on this, there's only one sport that matters in my household, which is soccer. 
and uh, soccer, for those of you who don't know how it works, is 11 people on one side, 11 on the other side, and they kick the ball into the net on the other side. That's all how it works. And 10 of, 10 of, the, 11 players, <laughs> 10 of the 11 players can only use their feet. Hence, it's called football. But one player can use their entire body, right? Now, if you don't play soccer and you see the sort of the goalie who uses her entire body to stop the ball from going to the net, you think, well, if you have the best possible goalie in the world, you're going to win every soccer game. In theory, that's true. But when you watch a professional soccer game, you see what the goalie does. And she or he is prowling the box and yelling at the other players. And you know what they're yelling at them? They're yelling at them, keep the ball away from me. Because every goalie knows that the net is very big, and if the ball comes at her in speed, a goal is going to be scored. Now, what's the point of the metaphor? The goalie is the doctor, right? The doctor has a very important role that when we get sick, we want the doctor to restore us to health. Everything else we're talking about in this conversation is the other 10 players. So ultimately, medicine, physicians have a really important role to play. One might argue a special role. They can use their whole body to stop the ball. But by themselves... They're never going to win the game. So who, for example, comprises the other 10 players? Anybody who's in a position of influencing housing, transportation, gender roles, economic opportunities, uh, economic, uh, I mentioned economic opportunities, everything else that we've talked about today, mm -hmm. those are the other 10 players. Mm -hmm. but, and then uh, not just physicians, but everyone else, the physician assistants, yes, the yes. nurse We're using physicians the, as a sort of... The provider. Exemplar, provider, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that I've been sort of on a um, kind of rampage about recently is the incredible uh, proliferation of urgent care um, facilities on every corner. They've turned into like the Starbucks. They should merge so you can. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm concerned about, first of all, the role uh, private equity plays in, uh, in starting buying up uh, uh, consolidating these urgent care uh, clinics that you see everywhere. Uh, I don't know if they have a lot of them popping up in Boston. Mm, they do. Uh, and the qual this is what I'm beginning to think, that the quality of care is c c of concern to me. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not, this is not, we are not, this is not your water metaphor. I mean, these are these instances where people go in, they... Uh, a lot of them are uninsured. Uh, it's questionable how good the quality of care is. They might or might not see a physician. Uh, they might see a physician assistant who has perhaps uh, a lower level of, well, definitely a lo lower level of mm -hmm. training from a physician. And I've just heard a lot of stories about um, how urgent care is something that is just sort of burgeoning thanks to um, corporate interest. I'll put it bluntly. Yeah, but I, uh, I have a lot of sympathy for rational actors within the system who are just figuring out a way to maximize their profits. I, and, and I, you have sympathy. I do, I do, because I, I, leaving aside, leaving aside rule-breaking and things that are illegal, but leaving that aside, which I, I would argue is a very small minority of cases, I think you create a system and the assumption is in a society that people are then going to operate within the rules. I mean, this, the system is set of rules, and, and the rules in, inexorably lead to ridiculous solutions like urgent care clinic. I'm not saying it's a, it's a right thing to do. I'm simply saying that there are people who are doing it 
who are following the rules. The problem is not the actors who follow the rules create urgent care clinic. The problem is a system that incentivizes urgent, urgent, urgent care clinics to begin with. Right. That's the problem. I think we agree. Yeah. So I think, you know, in terms of urgent care clinics, merging with Starbucks, I think if the rules allowed for it, if the rules allowed for it, that would happen. We should not allow that to happen. I really don't see how this is going to help the overall health. But No, I, I agree it's not going to, but um, I, I'm just loath to blame the people who do it. I'm actually, I, I would rather blame all of us for allowing it to happen. Aha. Oh, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Good point. So at the end of this wonderful book, which also, by the way, I know I keep singing its praises. It's not too long, thank <laughs> God. Only because I, so many of these books are tomes, and we all know that our attention span is shorter than it used to be. And it's, but it's so full of just, it's such an easy, wonderful, also slightly depressing read. Um, <laughs> you end, I love the way you end it which is with an alternate ending of the Sophia story. So why don't you um, tell us what the alternate ending is? So, he, so Sophia, by the way, comes back recurrently throughout uh, as he builds the case. The, the alternate ending, you can all imagine the alternate ending. It's um, go back to the beginning. Let's create a better life for Sophia. Let's say that she is born in a household where parents had... Um, stable employment and actually could look after her, where she was able to be driven to her after-school math classes, where she had better sex education so she didn't get pregnant at 16, and where then her job did not put her on her feet carrying an extra 40 pounds of weight. And Sophia's going to be 45. She's not going to need new knees. She's not going to have type 2 diabetes. And she didn't grow up next to a um, diesel-spewing bus depot and does not have asthma. And all her problems are first-world problems. Yes, no, they they all are. And it's the same Sophia. It's the same Sophia who has made the same choices with the same level of autonomy, with the same capacities. And her, the difference in the alternate reality, Sophia, between the Sophia that I start with and the Sophia I end with, is not about Sophia. It's about the world around her. It's about changing her water. And the, the, we should not allow, we should not allow the public conversation to be blaming Sophia for who she is when she is 45, when in fact... The same person with the same capacities, making the same choices, willing to work, the same amount of hard work, ends up in a very different place due to no fault of her own. So I'm just going to read the end because I I just think it's so um, hopeful. The ending of the story is significant not just because Sophia is healthy, but because Sophia, as a result of her health, is able to pursue her dreams and to expect that her daughter will be able to do the same. It falls to all of us to embrace health as a value, to create a world that is free of preventable, preventable disease and hazard, and to make it possible for the Sophias of our society to pursue their full potential so that we can all be truly well. Mm. The, um, I'd like to think the book is not depressing. I'd like to think the book is uplifting because it, it's, uh, I, I would like to think that... Um, if, 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 I'm, if I'm surfacing something that many readers say to me is obvious, if I'm surfacing something that we at some level can intuit and know it's the direction we should be going in, and we can see our way to embracing this towards creating a, a better world, I think that's optimistic. Uh, what if 
I'm not even going to read this first, so let's hope it isn't a ransom note. What if, instead of the current American medical insurance companies, each person is allocated, say, $1 million at birth for lifetime medical care, and the person takes responsibility for how the allocation is spent? Question. In your opinion, might this be a valid idea? I think it's a terrible idea. Um, um, I'll, t- I'll explain why. I, uh, I think we are... I'm a doctor, and I say this, and I include myself in that we. We are terribly equipped to make rational decisions about something as technical as what is required to generate our health. It ultimately, there is enormous asymmetry of information, and, and it, there's a asymmetry of information. There are things we just oh, asymmetry. Don't know. We just, there are things we just do not know, and uh, we. It, it is very difficult to make rational decisions about what's right for your health. So, it, it's hard enough to make rational decisions about what kind of car to buy, let alone what you need to do for your health. So, I actually think, assuming that we can be autonomous agents making the best decisions for our health is extending what is our human capacity way beyond what we can do. Which leads nicely into this next one, uh, which is written in large letters. For us in the room, is it too late? (laughs) (laughs) um, I'm going to stick with being optimistic and hopeful. It's never too late. It's, uh, it's, it's, no, it's never too late. And besides, it's not just about us. It's about who, those who come after us. It's okay. We, 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 the fact that you showed up for a lunchtime conversation about uh, health, it means that uh, we're on the right track. That's okay. It's not too late. Do not despair. It's hope. Hope is better. Optimism is better than the alternative. So any tips? Any tips? I think here's a tip. Go out there and talk to 10 friends about health. Talk to 10 friends about the fact that health is not about healthcare. And I'll tell you how you can do it. Start having a conversation about health and say, you know, I went to this lunchtime talk about health and take out your watch and see how many minutes it takes for your friends to use the word healthcare interchangeably with health. I promise you it'll be fewer than five minutes. And then you can say, aha, that gives you an opening to explain how health is different in healthcare. You convince 10 people, they'll convince 10 people, it'll change the conversation. Everyone got their assignment? Mm-hmm. And then let me know how it goes. <laughs> okay, we, we only have um, time for a, a couple more questions. Uh, they're getting better and better. Um, what is your opinion of drug ads... On mm. TV, can these be better yeah. regulated or eliminated mm-hmm. as they once were? Yeah, I think it's a terrific question. I, um, it's funny, somebody asked me that when I did um, the last one of these in uh, Atlanta. Um, I think they can and should be eliminated. The, uh, it, it is a classic example of changing the water, something we have complete control over, and it influences how we operate and how we intersect with demand for care and how the providers intersect with us in the context of curative care. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an easy thing to do. Now, when I say that, I'm not naive, and I know that large industry actors would fight that, but there is a natural experiment where that happens. 
a country called Canada, which is not that different than, than this country. And direct-to-consumer advertising of drugs is not allowed in Canada. And you know what? Pharmaceutical industries make profits in Canada as well. So it is eminently doable. It's an easy way of changing the water. Do you see that ever happening? That- yeah, I, I, I can see that happening. I can see, I can see how as the tide turns, conversation shifts, it can be a political solution that will, will gain traction. Absolutely. And do you? Th- I'm going to go out on a limb here, but do you think it will require a change in it in uh, administration? Uh, I think they start the dialogue. The the, the current. Uh, let me stick with my positivity. Um, um, the the negative is that the current administration has is on the record, both in terms of its words and its deeds, as disinvesting in all the pillars that create a healthier world. As disinvesting in all those other ten players. So I think, and I've written this. Um, the current administration is a risk factor for your health, and it is further depressing our health over the next 10 years. There's no question about it. The positive, so what's the positive? The positive is that I think the current administration has has catalyzed conversations simply because of opposition to its, to, to its approach that is adverse to positive human health that uh, we're going to have a, an activated generation of young people who 20 years from now will be in power and will be much sharper in their thinking than they would have been if this administration was not there. Now, that may be too late for some of us, but that's how it is. So in our last couple of minutes, let me ask you, so this is, the book is, it uh, just came out. Just came out. Um, it's called, I love the subtitle. It's, well, what we need to talk, what we need to talk about when we talk about health uh, that was my title. The publisher put well on top of it. <laughs> what I wanted to call the book Good was, move. well, we need to talk about, talk about health, but the publisher probably correctly said, well, nobody's going to read it if you just have a long yeah. title. So. Yeah. yeah, it's a great subtitle. Uh, and this is your, you said you're, in, you're on an eight-city swing. Correct. Right. And this is where the, you're fourth? No, no, no. This is, um, we have to, only two more. We have Seattle and LA, so this is fifth. Uh-huh. And what's the reception been like? You know, it's been really... Um, it's been really gratifying, and it's been it, a lot of it has been of the tone of, yeah, this is obvious. I just never thought of it in that way, and 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 I um, that makes me very happy. I want mm-hmm. us to say, this is intuitive, and this gets at a core that rings right. Because I feel like if that's the case, and I've been doing this in every city, challenging people, talk to ten friends, talk to ten friends. That's the assignment. Convince ten people, and they'll convince ten people. That's my mission. Should we log it somehow? On like, a, <laughs> we should start a whole kind of group, a whole movement. Yeah, a movement. Talk to ten friends. Movement. <laughs> thank you so much. Let's give a huge thank you to Dr. Sandro Galea. Dean at Boston University School of Public Health. We would also like to remind our audience that copies of Well are available for purchase, and he will be happy, 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 right, happy to sign copies in just a few moments. I'm Katie Hafner, and now in hopes for good global health. This meeting of the Commonwealth Club, the place where you're in the know, is adjourned. Thank you so much. Thank you, Katie.